Hello and welcome back to Biola Backstage. My name is Charlotte McKinley and I am your host. Here with me today is someone that I have known since my junior year and I'm always happy to see around campus. Dr. Joy Qualls is the School of Fine Arts and Communications Associate Dean here at Biola and someone that I am extremely excited to talk with today. So I wanted to jump right into the deep end with how did you choose communications? <laughs> so I started out as a history poli-sci major, uh, or I went to college as a history poli-sci major. I, I never made it as a, as a just that as a major because I wanted to go to law school. So that was my end goal. But I had been involved in speech mostly as a high school student and theater and um, had received a speech and debate scholarship to Vanguard University where I did well it was Southern California College then now Vanguard University to compete there and I met with the department chair who said you shouldn't study history and poli-sci you should study communication and I didn't really know anything about communication at that point but he offered to change my schedule around and make it more convenient so that I could um, spend more time with comm students. And so I ended up with a double major. So I did get to do both of those things. But really speaking, public speaking in particular, is the one thing that I was really talented at and had always excelled at. I had tried lots of different things, but that was really where my talents were. And so communication was a natural fit. So were you one of those students who would always jump at the opportunity to talk in front of class? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't early on um, quite as eager to speak up in class itself because I grew up in a really small town in rural Midwestern America and didn't have as many opportunities as some of my classmates did. I, ne I never got to take an AP class. I didn't get to study um, interesting electives or, or have foreign language education. And so there were um, a couple of years where I was getting my footing, where I had to overcome the sense that I wasn't as qualified as my classmates to speak into class. But again, I think public speaking debate competition helped me sort of gain some confidence in that area. And I think probably by the time I was done, conversation in class wasn't hard for me to be a part of. But um, but I always got a, a real charge out of things like presentations and, and things like that. I I felt most natural standing up in front of people. So then you went to get your master's. Yeah, that I was did. also in communication? It is. So all three of my degrees are in communication. And yeah, I took a year off between undergraduate school and, and graduate school, and I taught at a private Christian high school in Denver, Colorado. I could tell you a story another time about why you, you need to walk in obedience to the Lord's plan, and when you don't, how messed up things get, but we'll save that for another conversation. But that um, led me to Regent University in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where um, I actually studied with uh, our former dean here at Biola, Dr. Doug Tarpley. He was running a program in Washington, D.C. as part of uh, Regent's Communication and the Arts School for journalism in politics. And my emphasis was political communication. And so I spent half my time in Virginia Beach and almost every weekend in D.C., with Dr. Tarpley studying up there. So I had a little bit of exposure to, to journalism training as, as part of that, although that was not my, my particular area of study. Uh, and then I, just as I was finishing my master's degree, was offered a job on Capitol Hill that was created for me. 
Um, it was not a position that already existed, but I had done a couple of internships. So internships are super important. I had done a couple of internships and a United States senator remembered me and asked his chief of staff to track me down. And I was offered the job in October of 2001. So if you place your timeline back, the Pentagon was still smoldering from the attacks of 9-11. And I interviewed in the basement of the United States Capitol because the member of Congress that I went to go work for um, was a member of leadership. And his office, in order to protect leadership, had been moved into secure rooms in the basement of the Capitol. So it was quite, a, quite an interesting time. So how long did you work in that position? And also, what did you do before getting your doctorate? Yeah, so um, during my time getting my master's degree, I worked as the director of administration of, a, I would say, a, a medium-sized church in the area and finished school, went to D.C. I started in... December, January, it gets a little fuzzy <laughs> about exactly when. And I spent two years. I came back uh, to Virginia Beach in December of 2003. And that was in part because I really felt like the Lord called me back. I loved living in D.C. I loved what I did. I was sort of making my job up as I went along, which was hard because I didn't go in and like have a work manual or, you know, somebody else who did my job that I could ask questions to. And so my job wasn't easy, but it was a real opportunity to learn and grow and and form some initiative and things of that nature. But I walked from my apartment to my office every day. And I would stop in front of the Capitol and sort of marvel that a little girl from Crosby, North Dakota, got to live and work in Washington, D.C. And it was where the Lord really spoke to me for the first time in my life and, and said, you know, this, you've, I've given you everything you asked for. And this is a gift. And you can have it. But are you willing to walk away from all of it and do what I wanted you to do? And two weeks later, I went in and resigned my job, didn't have anything else lined up, didn't have anything on the back burner. And I'm probably the only person who left a job in the United States Senate to go be a church secretary. <laughs> but I was able to get my old job back. And it was a professor I'd had at Regent University who had tried to talk me into skipping my master's and going straight to a PhD in the first place, which I can tell you $75,000 later, I probably should have done that. But again, you know, when you're a student like that, you're navigating uh, growing up and learning how to make decisions and how to navigate the workplace and, and what's left in your training and all of those things. So I don't regret the path that I took. But like I said, I can look back now and say, Doors were opened that I didn't know I could walk through. And I wish I would have had people around me or had had people in my life who would have said, walk through this door. Because in my mind, it was like, well, but if I get a PhD now, am I going to be overeducated and not be able to go work in D.C.? Because that was still my primary focus was like, this is what I'm going to do. So I, I, like I said, I don't regret any of it, but there's a cost to those things, physical time money, all of that. So anyway, I got accepted into a PhD program. This time I had had some kind of realization of the role that religion and particularly evangelicalism um, as a rising political movement, not a religious movement, but a political movement was having. So I wanted to study and understand religious rhetoric as part of the political process. And so I did my PhD in political and religious rhetoric 
while also doing a minor in the theology school on what they called renewal theology, because I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition. And so it wasn't a study in Pentecostalism in particular, but in, in renewal theology to try to figure out kind of some of the intersections between um, religion and, and political communication. So you were able to take a minor while you were doing your doctorate? I, I was. So I had no formal theological training other than the Bible and theology classes I had to take as an undergraduate student. And I knew I needed some of those foundational courses. And I don't know if it was a certificate or, you know, what they actually called the formal program, but I was able to do a smaller course of study while I was studying this larger thing to sort of build up my my knowledge base. Those types of things are a little bit more prevalent today than they were. There's lots of PhD programs across the country that are interdisciplinary where you take uh, a major area of study and then you might add um, some components to it from other schools. And so that wasn't really a popular thing, nor was it intentional. You know, in those days when I did it, it was just I was lacking some knowledge in, in this particular area. And I knew if I was going to write a dissertation on any of these subjects, I needed some of that foundational theological training in order to do that. Nice. And now you're here at Biola. So yes. How did that all happen? <laughs> yeah. It, uh, so I had been working at Evangel University in Springfield, Missouri. Um, my husband and I had been there. He was there for seminary. And we thought we'd be there for two years. And we were there for nine years and had two kids and two dogs and a house and all of these things when I was at a conference in November, which I'll be at in a couple of weeks. And I ran into Dr. Todd Lewis, who had been the department chair here at Biola for over 25 years, had been at Biola for over 40 years at that point. And he was my mentor's mentor. And so we had known each other over the years. I had competed at the Todd Lewis Invitational here at Biola on the campus right here as a college student. So we had known each other for several years, but we were at a reception and he said, I'm retiring this year and I think you should apply for my job. And I laughed at him because I thought, um, one, the Biola that I knew from years earlier maybe wouldn't have been as open to some of the things that I had ended up studying or somebody from my background. And so I kind of dismissed it. And several months later, he emailed me and he said, no, I'm serious. I'm retiring in just a you know few short weeks and I think you should apply for my job. And so out of a courtesy to him, I submitted the application. I told my husband, don't worry about this. We're not moving to California. This is going to be good practice, and we're going to learn how to do a search with a larger university. We had both been at universities that were about half Biola's size. And so, you know, here's an opportunity to learn and grow and all of those sorts of things. But don't worry, we're not moving. And all along the way, the doors just continued to open. And, and at one point, he said, I think we're moving to California. And, and here we are, and we've been here eight years. So what exactly do you do as an associate dean? <laughs> That's a good question. So an associate dean role um, at Biola is a relatively new role. So I came in as a department chair. That's how I started. I was hired as a department chair. And then when I came, there was one large school called the School of Arts and Sciences. And when the School of Sci Science, Technology, and Health was formed, that was pulled out. So you couldn't really have a School of Arts and Sciences if a majority of the sciences 
was someplace else, right? So the university made the decision to break up into several schools. So we have nine. I think it's nine schools at Biola now. And so the School of Fine Arts and Communication was formed at that point, And we hired our dean. And he, we say he restructured, but that's probably not really the, the best way to describe. He structured the school because he's the founding dean. And he wanted to institute divisions that made a little bit more sense because we're we're an interesting hodgepodge of departments in our school. So music in the conservatory and art and then theater, which was part of Com Studies for a long time, Com Studies Journalism PR. And and so we are, are organized into divisions that way. So my role is to oversee our division, which is journalism, PR, and communication studies, but to really serve as a conduit between the faculty mostly, but also students, to the administration and from the administration back to faculty and to some extent students. Um, sometimes I describe my job as a cultural interpreter, that these are two very different cultures and sometimes they're suspicious of one another, they don't trust one another, and it's my job to sort of make those connections between particularly the faculty and the administration, but to also serve students and make sure that their interests are are heard and, and taken care of. So. So I'm not anybody's boss necessarily in that like I don't have hiring and firing authority, but I'm responsible to the administration for the development and the encouragement of faculty as well as if there were any problems, it's kind of mine to have to try to solve and navigate those problems, but to also be an advocate for students and student needs as well. And then back the other direction that if there are things that the administration has questions about or plans that they're making, not just to tell the faculty about them, but to solicit feedback and to um, try to make sure that the faculty's voice is heard in those situations. And then the biggest thing that I do on a day-to-day basis is I oversee the budgets. So I manage the monies for the different departments, which is super funny because numbers hurt my head. And so um, I'm a language girl. I'm not a not a numbers girl, but this is one of the ways that God is stretching me and teaching me in new areas to think about the the budgeting process and the planning process and how to manage things that way. So so there's always something new. You never stop being a student. You also teach one of the communication courses right now, correct? Yeah. So I, I'm supposed to teach one class a semester. I'm I teach more than that, I'll be honest with you. Primarily, I teach what we call our History of the Study of Communication class. It is a class that talks about the development of communication as an academic discipline, but it also incorporates our writing for the discipline in there. So there's a heavy focus on APA writing. There's a heavy focus on learning kind of the beginning research process before students go into their research methods class and really take that on, but I we introduce some of those early processes in that class. And I love to teach that class. I'm kind of a um, APA, I don't know, guru, what's the word that you use? It I it's been so drilled into me since an undergraduate student that <laughs> that I I'm I'm kind of picky about APA. So it's a good class for me to teach. But in the spring I'm gonna teach rhetorical criticism, which is our research methods class for a highly specialized research methods class that takes 
place of our advanced research methods in off years. Um, it's a really fun class to go to because we go to Disneyland and do field research. So big pitch for if you want to learn research as well as go to Disneyland for class. It's a great class to take, but it's one of my favorites. And then I am, I'm kind of sad because normally in a year like this, I'd be teaching political communication, but we're probably going to just focus on those in presidential years. So I'm hoping to do that in 24. And then we follow that up in the spring with a religion and American public life class, which kind of goes back to that intersection between religion and politics that I love so much. So is that one your favorite class to teach? That one's my favorite one to teach. Probably my second favorite is the rhetorical criticism class just because that's how I got my start. I miss being in our core courses because that's where my first contract that I had as a full-time professor came for teaching just gen ed. And I miss that with students because I knew students all over campus in those days, not just our majors. And now I tend to get majors right at the end or, you know, kind of in the middle of their program. So I don't get to know as many students on campus as I used to. And I don't get students until they've already had just about everybody else, you know. So it's a different life and a different approach to education than what has been kind of the bulk of my career. But I'm, I'm enjoying this new season. Kind of moving on and pivoting to a different direction sure. now. What's one thing about you that people are always surprised to find out? <sighs> That's a good question. Um, I'm pretty public, so I don't know that there's a ton of things that people are surprised about. I think people would be surprised if they knew that I'm a very loud parent at my kids' sporting events. So I'm not, I try not to be that parent. Like I'm, I'm trying not to be like after the refs and things like that, but I'm a very big cheerleader for my kids on the sidelines. And so um, I'm probably very embarrassing and all of those sorts of things, which I think is part of my job. But I think people would be surprised at just how much of a Intuit fan I am of my kids' sports. So what? do they play and also how old are they <laughs> excuse me so my daughter is 12 she'll be 13 in january and she plays volleyball and she's just gotten into a local club here and we'll see whether or not we decide to stick with that she's kind of still feeling out the club thing and then my son soren is 11 he'll be 12 in march they're 13 months apart and he plays soccer right now and then his his main sport is baseball but he decided not to do fall ball this year and to play soccer instead. And I think it's been a good decision to to get back into. He played soccer as a little kid, but he's really loving um, soccer right now. So yeah, I love it. I love being on the sidelines. I love being able to be a part. Um, they both also play piano and other musical instruments. So it's been important to have a good balance for them. But but yeah, I, I'm a big sports fan anyway. So <laughs> I, I love watching them. Did you play any sports when you were their age? I played basketball and volleyball. Um, I was not great at any of those things. I probably played too long because I wasn't a great athlete or any of those. I, I Speech and theater. And then I was the team statistician. So I blew my ankles out <laughs> playing basketball. And I, I kind of happened into being the statistician. And I loved being the statistician, keeping those records and, and things like that. And I got to talk to the media every time there was a game because of the stats. So it was it was kind of my introduction to to speaking with media. 
Nice. So in communications, I know it's a very general, like very general type of a thing. You can go like anywhere with communication. Yes, you can. So when you were doing communications, were you doing, because earlier you mentioned more journalism type things. Sure. So like what were you exactly doing in with communications? Sure. So I've done a lot of different things with the degree. Like I said, I, I spent a lot of time in the church world my job in graduate school was director of administration, so I wasn't a pastor on staff at the church, but I oversaw all of the business side of the church. So promotions and development of programs and all of those sorts of things, as well as accounting and and that sort of process, I oversaw all of those sorts of things. So, so I would say communication has led me into certain aspects that we might attribute to PR. So really my job in DC was PR related. I was I, we might have we might have called it more of a community relations job in the sense that it was my job to connect the public to the senator's legislation. So I created groups like databases of different groups of people who identified with special interests and then we would connect them with the legislation that the senator was proposing and we would do big community meetings now today we would do all of this on zoom but back in those days we didn't have that type of technology so i would fly back and forth between my home state and washington dc and we would have meetings with community leaders and the senator would be on a on a speakerphone and but we would be there as his representatives trying to pitch the legislation to the community leaders so that they would then in turn support it so there was a little bit of that i have worked as as a public speaker as a conference speaker and and in different areas like that and then of course in education which is so communicative i'm not just teaching communication but you know, my husband's a psychology professor and he's up in front of people. He's writing curriculum, right? So there's just communication aspects to to all of the things that we do. So I, I know it's a, it's a challenge for students sometimes because we live in such a specialized world, right? That they want to be able to say, I'm, I'm going to be this when I graduate. But my argument to students is that especially in an age of such uncertainty where the truth of the matter is the jobs that most people are doing today didn't exist 10 years ago. So the jobs that you guys are going to do are, are going to be jobs you create, not jobs that you inhabit. And so I think having broader focused and, and I would include journalism and PR in this. I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say this is only a com studies thing. But the training and the knowledge and the education that you have is going to be less about you going on LinkedIn and finding a job that says journalist or finding a job that says communication specialist. It's going to be looking at those work profiles that say effective communication skills needed, right? Employers tell us that they're looking for people who have good writing skills, good speaking skills, and good problem solving skills. And that's what we teach in our division across all three of our programs. Yes, there's some targeted things we teach. Yes, there's some specialized components to those things. Yes, one is more research oriented than the other. All of those things are also true, but you're all being trained to do those things that employers are looking for. And so what I want students in our division to understand is that you can go into a job situation and say, here's why I have the skills that you need for me to help your organization, your company, your Senate office, whatever it happens to be, rather than you looking and saying, what's the job that's going to fit this thing? 
And I think those are the degrees that are going to carry people into the future. Not that you're biased or anything. <laughs> Not at all. And I don't make any claims of, of being neutral on any of this stuff. I, I believe very passionately that we're going to see a shift where I think I think we're seeing it already, but where people are dissatisfied with preconceived roles and preconceived ideas of what job and work looks like. And I want our students to be prepared to be the creators of those things, not just people who are hired as employees. Not that it's bad. I've been an employee most of my life. But that you will see the creativity available to you because you possess the right skills, not necessarily the right degree program. Do you think that we're going to see more of an increase in small business owners and entrepreneurs, innovators, things like that? I do. I do. I think, and, I, and I'll confess to you, I don't have a lot of that ingenuity. I wish I did. I love people who have that spirit. I think part of my challenge is I grew up pretty poor, and I think the risk-taking that comes with entrepreneurship is, is probably something that I lack because of some of those things. I wanted security and safety. You know, but I see the work of, of people who are in the tech industry. My middle brother has a bachelor's degree in journalism from a large state university, and he is a tech executive who started out in computer languages. He's never worked for a media outlet ever, but the work that he does, he attributes his training in journalism every single solitary day to the work he does. And he makes more money than I'll ever see in my lifetime. So it's one of those things where, you know, again, I think you have to go where God is leading you. You have to go where your talents are. You have to go where your skills are needed. But don't be limited by, well, my degree is this, so I need to work in this specific area. Um, he probably would have been great had he done that. But but I could tell you story after story after story of people like my brother who found their niche and it's the training that they received in these programs that helped them make those connections, but they're not labeled the same way as as you might assume. So don't limit yourself to, to those things. So I know you've already given a lot of advice to Biola students already <laughs> throughout this past few, these past few minutes, but what's one more piece of advice that you give for sure. Biola students? The thing that I would say to students is that you can trust the Lord with your future. He is so faithful that the time that you have spent here is a proving space for you to be formed and shaped more to be like him. I doesn't sell well on the recruitment stage, but I would actually tell students, I, I really don't actually care whether you get a job when you are done with college and not because I don't, it doesn't matter to me that you don't have employment. But this is not a job training program. There are places you could go for a lot less money and a lot less time to be job trained. This is a spiritual formation season in your life. I care more about who you become than what you do because what you do is an outcropping of who you are. And so that would be, I would say, take advantage of this season to allow the Lord to shape and to mold you and to really seek him for who you are to be and and to be formed by him and to be formed by these experiences. I 
I love our Bible and theology components. I love the emphasis that's placed on spiritual formation because at the end of the day, you are going to get jobs. Everybody's going to get a job and and you're going to do many, many jobs. If I listed out all the jobs that I've done since undergraduate school, they would be crazy. But who you are matters more than any of those things. And you are rarely going to have a season like this one where you are sequestered away from most of the challenges of life. And that's not to say you don't experience hardship and things like that, but but you're not, most of you are not thinking about how to pay the bills or how to care for your family or, um, you know, and not, again, I know there's people who are in those positions, but for the most part, this is a season that the Lord has set you apart, has has taken you into the desert, if you will, for training and preparation for what is to come and just savor that, savor that because you have the rest of your life <laughs> to be a worker and you have the rest of your life to be a grown up and you have the rest of your life to do jobs. You will never get this time in your life back and it's such a beautiful season. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Qualls, for coming on. I really enjoyed talking to you and learning so much more about you. Like, I had no idea that you lived in D.C. for a while. Like, that's super cool. And thank you for all of the advice that you've given me and also all the other Biola students and non-Biola students (laughs) listening to this. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Charlotte. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biola Backstage. It was a pleasure getting to talk with Dr. Qualls and hearing about her experiences through life and the wisdom that she shared with us. Next week, I am excited to bring on Matthew Weathers, an adjunct professor in the math department and the Applied Instructional Technology Administrator for the Office of Digital Learning and Program Development here at Biola. Make sure you tune into that next Monday. Until next time! (laughs) 